remain standing for the reading of the gospel, Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 27. And we're beginning in the middle of the speech, which is not the best way to understand a speech. Jesus speaks and says, but I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. In Pam Genoff's book, The Lost Girls of Paris, recounts the recruiting and training of young women in Great Britain during World War II. Their field assignment would be to go into Nazi-occupied France and there to disrupt the Nazi war effort and send back information and blow up railroads. When recruited, they did not fully know what they were getting into. At most, they thought they would be radio operators behind the lines. One woman named Marie was recruited because she could speak French very well and because the pay in her job was so meager and she wanted more because her husband left when the baby was born and she was trying to raise a five-year-old by herself. But during their training, they began to understand that what they signed up for is incredibly dangerous. Indeed, they finally discovered that once behind enemy lines, their life expectancy is about six weeks. Learning this, Marie just wants to go home. She wants to see her little girl again. But there's another recruit named Josie, and Josie is a Jewish woman, and she's here with a fire in her belly because it's her people who are being annihilated by the Nazis. And she says to Marie, your daughter is your reason for being here. You're fighting for her and the world she will live in. Imagine your daughter as a grown woman. 
Think what you tell her about the part you played in the war. Create a story of which you will be proud. What a courageous mantra for a world gone mad. Create a story of which you will be proud. Jesus here, I think, is telling them to create a story of which they can be proud in their crazy world. He begins by saying, to you that listen. And it's fair to ask, who's the you? And that's the problem with starting the speech in the middle. Because it starts back up at verse 20, where he speaks to the disciples and very quickly says to him, blessed are you poor. Are the disciples poor? They were poor in a very particular way in that culture. In a culture of shame and honor, they were shamed. They were dishonored. You were honored because you kept the tradition of your elders, because you lived by the same rules you'd always lived by, because you followed the norms. You were safe because you did what the Romans said. And here these followers of Jesus are stepping outside the norm and going beyond the expected. They're following this guy who has been discredited. He's risky. He brings the Romans down on us. Even his thoughts about his resurrection, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. We don't want anything to do with this Jesus. And by the time Luke wrote his gospel, there were Christians who suffered a great deal because they were followers. They were considered to be dishonorable. The culture said you could not give to these poor people. You could give to the poor who were there for no fault of their own. Orphans, widows, you could give to them. But not to somebody who chose to step outside the norm. Indeed, you were prohibited from trading with them, from buying their produce. And so you can see in that culture, they would quickly become destitute. And this gospel that creates has some of the Beatitudes in it. Blessed are you poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are you who weep. It's about their description. They would have been poor because they followed Jesus. They would have been hungry, hungry to belong, and even hungry for food. And certainly they would have wept over all they'd lost and all that had been taken away. They were not considered the worthy poor. They were always considered the unworthy So likely one of the other things that went with this was that they were also very angry. Jesus speaks to them, to them that listen. It must have been hard to listen. But he's saying to them, drink in my words, feed on their meaning, digest this purpose for your life. Listening is always more than hearing words. Jesus is saying, here is the outline for the novel of your life. Create a story of which you will be proud. And the first thing he says to these desperate people is, love your enemies. And just as we want to know who the you is to whom he speaks, we also want to know who are the enemies. Those who hurt you. Those who kicked you out. Those who excluded you and shamed you. Those who've left you poor and isolated, who've left you hungry for food and belonging, those who've left you weeping for all that's taken. Whoever wields the weapon of shame is my enemy. 
We live in a name-calling time where the powerful belittle and denigrate. We live in a religious culture where parents shame their own children because they dare to speak the truth of who they are. And wounding their own, they make themselves enemies. Who's your enemy? Who's lied to you? Who's hurt you? Who's bullied you? Who's abandoned you? Who's that person that when you think of them, the adrenaline starts to pump and you start thinking of things you wished you'd said? The person you don't want to think about when you're going to sleep because you know you'll be awake for a long time? So I've heard. Love your enemies. Love them. Bless them. Pray for them. Turn the other cheek. That's not a prescription for self-defense. It was a ritual slap delivered at the place of worship. It was a time of public shaming and humiliation and shunning. And it was a slap that resounded, reverberated through your whole life. Because they're saying to you, you're lost to us. And by implication, you're lost to God. And I should give to everyone. They won't give to me. And the ancient world philosophers would say it was right. It was right to give the right amount to the right person at the right time. They sound like editorial writers who fall in love with the word right. But these are disciples of Jesus who are outside the norm, and they are defined as always wrong. But Jesus is saying to them, don't go by their standards. Give to everyone, whatever you have. You know... Doesn't Jesus need a reality check here? Shouldn't we check him in somewhere and have him evaluated? This is crazy stuff. But Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What good is a score-keeping love? Oh, they believed in love. They loved their families. You you love your family. They love you back. It's all reciprocal, and it's it's a good deal. You knew your villagers, you loved them to an extent, they loved you back, you had a place and belonging, but the love was limited. In Jesus' day, there was a commune at Qumran near the Dead Sea, hence the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know from them that they taught that one should hate the sons of darkness. The sons of darkness being those folks who didn't share your worldview. Even the Romans practiced kindness, but it was a suck-up kind of kindness. You did someone a favor, and it was viewed as an acceptable way to kind of move up the ladder. You did someone a solid, the next promotion that came along, they might remember you. Kindness came with obligation. And Jesus says, anybody can do that. I'm kind to you, you're kind to me, up the ladder we go. The problem is there are people who don't have ladders. I met this woman who was poor and isolated in a rural area in Henry County. She just lost her husband, and she would say he was her best friend and her only friend. 
and you work with her a little bit, you realize why she might not have very many friends. But she just lived about half a mile, three quarters of a mile from a small rural church. And she said she had no one, and I asked if she ever went there because it was nearby. It would be attended by her neighbors. And she said she went once, and she wasn't going back. I said, what happened? And she said, well, the neighbor invited me, and I went there that day, and she invited me to sit on the pew with her. And then I found out she won two concert tickets for having the most people there that day. She didn't ask me to go to the concert with her. Here, Jesus proposes a gracious kindness free of any obligation. Kindness not from calculation, but from character. Love those who hurt you, who abuse you, who impoverish you, perhaps even who are kind to you in hopes of getting something from you. No gooey sentiment here, just love defined as an act of will. You will the good for the other and not harm. Give up the right to revenge as the first step of forgiveness. Be generous, even when you have so little to be generous with, and when there's no hope of repayment. But the big question, why live this way? If I just do back to people what they do to me, does anyone ever get better? Responding with hatred to an enemy only increases hatred. If I am abused and I respond with abuse, then I'm multiplying the brokenness in the world. If I curse those who curse me, I'm crowding out any room for blessing. The cycle of injury to retaliation to more retaliation only multiplies the brokenness of the world. And Jesus is saying, live by a higher loyalty, a surprising love that wills unexpected kindness. Practice an unexpected generosity. Practice an unexpected generosity of spirit that seeks to do the hardest thing, forgive. Give up on that easy stuff of judging and condemning. Break the cycle. Because once we're all caught in the cycle, we are all slave to the cycle. And we'll never be free. The second reason I find, and this is in that face slap delivered in the place of worship. Turn the other cheek, wow. But I think it's love responding creatively. Can you imagine yourself there in that place with people you've known and worshipped with and studied the scriptures with all your life? Family and friends. You know each other intimately. But somewhere along the way, things begin to polarize, and finally it's decided that you have to go. And there's no place else to go. You could leave Highland and go to any one of hundreds of churches in Louisville, but they didn't have any other place to go. And the slap is delivered, it stings, it leaves a mark. And everybody's eye is on you. And everybody's blood pressure is up. And in that moment, the only gesture 
of love you can think of is simply to turn and offer your other cheek. You don't say the angry things that jump to your lips. You focus on standing quietly and maintaining eye contact. What would happen then? To one who has taught you since you were a child, who has just slapped your face, what would happen then? To family and friends who have seen your face slap and you simply turn your other cheek, what would happen? Oh, to be sure, there would be those who would slap you again. But there just might be some who would regret the slap, who would wish it never happened, who begin to realize that deep inside of them their relationship with you was more important than their disagreements with you, that there was a love that transcended all of this, and with your creative gesture you have given them the opportunity to step back and see if they don't want to be a better person. One of the joys of recovering from surgery with a sling and not being able to do a whole lot is binge-watching television. (laughs) We have discovered a program called Heartland about a ranch in Canada. It's owned by Jack, a tall, gruff, aging cowboy. Finances are always a problem. A neighboring rancher has so much more money and is always throwing it around to control and manipulate everyone, including her daughter. Her daughter's a spoiled brat by any definition of the word, has a sleek new red car. But one day her daughter's had enough and walks out on her mother. She took the car with her. And then the day comes when this woman has to go to a city, to a big hospital, for tests that will require anesthesia. And she asks Jack to drive her there and back. And it's very telling that with all of her money, only Jack is the one she asks. Jack says he will. She's never done any kindness to him, but he does. He drives her. But before they leave the county, he pulls off the side of the road, and there stands this woman's daughter standing by that sleek red car. Now, it'd be nice to say there was this wonderful reconciliation, but there wasn't. There was just this moment when the daughter said, I don't want to fight anymore, Mom. Get in the car. Sweet. But she pauses that moment and she turns around and she looks at Jack, who's all tall, aging cowboy, who's just standing there watching. And you get the sense that she knows he's just given her the opportunity to reconcile with her daughter, to spend some time side by side with her in a critical moment of her life, a chance to be a better person. She turns, she gets in the sleek red car, and with all of her wealth, they drive off. And Jack gets in his beat-up old pickup, but the sense is that the powerful one drove off in the old beat-up pickup. Now, I'd like to tell you that Jack's a perfect character, but he's stubborn as a mule, and that's a disservice to mules everywhere. He's gruff. He makes mistakes. But I think about our loving the way Jesus describes here that seems so impossible. It's not about doing it perfectly. It's about doing it the best way we can. 
and understanding that we become sons and daughters of the Most High and that God is merciful to all of us and truly delights in our efforts to love with a surprising love. Create a life of which you will be proud. Let's pray together, please. We find ourselves surprised by your demands, frightened by them, really. We find ourselves overwhelmed by your love. It's kind of scary to love that way, oh God. And we need a strength that we don't have, a wisdom beyond us, and a sense of your forgiveness when we fail. Help us make a better world. Help us to write good stories that we can tell our children about. In the name of this Christ, amen.